Well, we have made it to the last night of our gospel meeting. I make the comment very often whether or not it is uh, myself holding the meeting or if it's a meeting that we're having at our local congregation. It seems like meetings start and end. Just, it seems like they just go by so fast. And I think that's, I think that's a good thing because that means that we are uh, enjoying our time but it's also something that we are spending time in that we are interested in. And so appreciate the, the kind words that have been expressed. Appreciate the opportunity to come and to present God's Word to you. Uh, we were looking forward to this, uh, looking forward to getting to know uh, the group here uh, because of Ruth Ann marrying Evan and, and him bringing her to Mississippi, away from Missouri. Um, we wanted to find out. We knew we'd, we'd visited enough and got to meet enough of you, but we wanted to get to know you a little bit better. And, and it has been a real joy. It's been a real pleasure for us to get to know you. It's hard for a guy to get hungry around here. Um, we have been well fed. And so I, I, Leslie and I both, we appreciate whether or not you have had us in your homes, whether you've taken us out to eat, uh, what, whatever you have done to make sure uh, that we were fed, that we were taken care of, uh, we appreciate that. Appreciate Evan and Ruthann. I guess that was just kind of fell by default. We had to stay with them uh, by virtue of the connection, but we were looking forward to that, looking forward to spending more time with them. And uh, they've been fantastic hosts. Uh, gracious host, everything that we needed uh, was there, and so we, we appreciate that. Um, appreciate the opportunity to lead your minds in the study of God's Word. And like the last song that we sang, where, where else are we going to go? Um, you know, when the Lord turned to Peter, and when some of his disciples had left because of the words of the Lord, remember when Jesus turns to Peter and says, are you going to leave too? And Peter says, Lord, to whom would we go? Where would we go? And that's what we have tried to do this evening and every evening as well as Sunday. We've gone to the only place, the only source that we can go to to find out what we need to do. And that's why when we don't have a a, a topic as we've not had uh, this week or a set topic, um, I try to do a little bit of everything, textual, topical, practical, doctrinal. And so we've had a little bit of, of all of those because I feel like that if we do that, then, then we've had a good smattering of teaching that is available to us from God's Word. And so we've attempted, we've attempted to do that. And so I appreciate the, the offer to come and the invitation to come. And I hope that we have been... Uh, or a little bit as encouraging to you as you definitely have been uh, been into us. It, it has been a good week to be together. For this evening, we have one final study that we need to look at. And that is a study revolving around the question, it's what, what is the state of your salvation? When I say state... I mean, from Macmillan Dictionary, I mean the condition of something at a particular time. That's the way the word state can be used in a variety of ways, but that's the way that I mean it. The condition of something at a particular time. 
And so the nature of this lesson is going to be identifying the states through which one travels to receive that gift, that gift of eternal salvation. So how are we going to accomplish that? What we're going to be doing is we're going to be filling out this chart. And you're going to notice, if you look at this chart, that we've got salvation in one box here at the very bottom. So that would imply then that as we look at some of these other boxes, we're going to be putting some things in those boxes as well. So that would be the first thing that I'd have you notice from this particular slide. The second thing that I'd have you notice from this particular slide is that after we get to the second box, then we find two choices, two options, two avenues, if you will. And so when you look at this, there is definitely one side that is going to take us to where we want to be, and that is salvation. But there is another side that that will cause us to pull up short. And really, anywhere along the line here, we may come here and we may go this way and we've, we've pulled up short of salvation. We may make it all the way to here and while we've made the right choice all along, all down the way here, we can get to this point and choose the wrong and end up not having salvation. And so, let's see if we can find out from God's Word if God's Word will support this kind of of a layout. I want to suggest to you that when it comes to the the states of salvation, I would suggest to you that the Bible identifies that there are those who find themselves in a state of ignorance. Now, I don't mean, and I think you understand, but just to make sure if anyone might hear this in the various avenues in which this sermon might go out. I'm not saying that that they are lacking in intelligence. I'm not saying that they're stupid. I'm just saying they're unaware of something. That's, That's all that the word ignorant means, unaware. They may be highly intelligent, but they're unaware of something. Think about 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter is beginning this letter and he's reminding those that he's going to write to what they have been obedient to, what awaits them. And he's going to remind them of this because Peter understands that they are suffering a great trial of affliction, he says in chapter 2. So you've got people that are suffering as a result of what they have believed, but they need to understand the benefit of what they have believed that will give them the ability to get through the suffering. But he recalls their state before they were in this particular state of salvation. He says, therefore, he gives them this challenge in verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were years in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. 
And so Peter acknowledges the fact that these individuals, that where they are now, they are obedient children. But there was a time in their life when they were in a state of ignorance, that they were unaware of the fact that the lust that they were allowing to drive their lives and control their choices, that that wasn't good, that that wasn't where they needed to be. They were ignorant of the fact that there was a way out there that they would be held accountable to and that the lust that they were living according they were going to be held accountable to those choices and they were going to be found wanting. And so Peter says, you need to make sure that you recognize that you don't go back to that time in which you were ignorant, when you were unaware of this. But that identifies the fact, and Peter identifies the fact, that there are a lot of individuals that are completely ignorant and unaware of the choices that they're making. We look all around us today and there are intelligent individuals with many letters after their name. And so it is not that they lack intelligence. It is not that they aren't smart enough or it is not that they have some deficiency in some way. They're just unaware of the fact that the way that they have selected to live their life is going to come with some consequences that they're not going to be wanting to pay. They're unaware of the fact that there's a day of reckoning that's coming. And so they just live according to their lust. Whatever feels good. Whatever seems right. Peter says they had lived that way. But I want you to notice that in Paul's sermon on the mount, or on the, in Athens, when he was preaching his sermon on the Areopagus, he says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. We live in a time when, though there were some who are ignorant, we live in a time that God's not going to overlook ignorance any longer. Now, for you and I, in the position that we're in, that should be a challenge to us. Since we know the gospel message is available, since we know that people are going to be making poor choices, and since we know that people are unaware of the fact that they're going to be held accountable to those choices, that should be the marching orders of God's people to say, we've got to get out there and get the gospel. We've got to make these people aware of this. Which gets us to our second point. What do you do with people in an ignorant state? Well, you teach them. You sat down and you make them aware of what they were unaware of previously. In John chapter 6, verses 44 and 45, this is what Jesus acknowledges. He says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught... Of God, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And so, as we look at our chart, we find that all individuals, many individuals, will wind up in a state of ignorance. They're unaware of the fact that their choices that they're 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 making, the decisions that they're making, the things in their life, the sins in their life, all those things are going to come back, and they're going to give an account for that. So, we need to make them aware of the fact 
that you stand as the recipient of the wrath of God unless you change your life. God's going to hold you accountable because you're his creation. God's going to hold you accountable for how you live your life. And that implies then God has a standard by which he wants his creation to live. And when they don't live that way, God holds them accountable. We need to tell them that. But there are many individuals who are unaware of that. And so we have to teach them that. Once that is done then, once we've laid out for them, and we've gone to the only place and the only source that we can lay that out, they have a choice. What are they going to do with that? Are they going to believe what you have presented? Or are they going to reject that? And so here comes our first choice. In Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 4, Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How shall they hear unless someone sends them? Paul says in Romans chapter 10. And so here is Paul and Silas coming to this synagogue and reasoning with those who knew the law but did not see or were unaware of how that that was going to be fulfilled and that the Christ would have to suffer. And so he lays that out. You need to be aware of the fact that the Christ, the anointed one that you're looking for, that one of the evidences that this is him is he's going to suffer. And Jesus suffered. Jesus is who you're looking for. He's the anointed one. He's the Christ. But there were many indications and examples of people who got this message and didn't believe. Did you notice that in Acts chapter 17, we are told, as was his custom. So that doesn't mean that that was the first time that that, uh, Paul has tried that sermon in Acts chapter 17. This was his custom, going to a city, Is there a synagogue? I'll go to the synagogue and I'm going to explain from the scriptures, their scriptures, the Christ had to suffer, Jesus is the Christ. That was Paul's sermon outline everywhere that he went. Well, you would say, well, it was very successful in Acts 17. That must have been the case everywhere he preached that sermon. They they must have all always believed that every time that, that he presented that. Well, you know that's not the case. In Acts chapter 14, we then begin to see this mixture in some of these references. You have a mixture of those who accept it, and then you have some that reject it. In Acts 14, and verse 1, In Iconium they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of the people believed, both Jews and Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. A little bit later in Acts chapter 17 and verse 32, when now Paul has moved from Thessalonica and now he's in Athens, and he gets the opportunity to preach, as we've read a little bit earlier in his sermon, 
And so how, how did that how did that go after Paul has acknowledged the fact that God is going to overlook these times of ignorance and now he's telling people to repent because he's fixed a day in which he's going to hold them accountable. So how did they receive that message? Well, it says, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, mock, make fun of. But others said, we shall hear you again on this matter. In Acts chapter 19, He entered the synagogue and continued to speak out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus, his time in Ephesus. But is that a problem? People make choices. Every day. And they're not always life and death, eternal choices. Is it a problem if people reject this message and fail to believe this message? In Luke chapter 8, verses 11 and 12, in Luke's account of the parable of the sower, of the different kinds of hearts that the message will receive. So this, this ought to be interesting because here is people are being taught So here are all these different kinds of hearts that we're going to give this message to, that we're going to teach. All these different kinds, yet they're they're all ignorance, but the, the condition of their heart may vary drastically. And so here we're going to look at the condition of some some hearts. And the very first one, he says, Those beside the road, verse 12, are those who have heard, then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe. So, because of the devil's influence in their life, they do not allow that word to take root in their life. They do not allow the word to have an impact on the life. They choose to ignore that. But what's the consequences of that? Well, keep reading. So that they will not believe and not be saved. That's the consequence of choosing not to believe. Unless you believe that I am He, Jesus said in John chapter 8 and verse 24, you'll die in your sins. And so here we find many individuals pull up short in their pathway to salvation. They have been ignorant. They hear about a Bible study They receive an invitation. You go and you explain to them God's Word. You show them the Scriptures. And now you have taught them. You have given them the information. In fact, you've given them enough information that they can accept or reject, believe or not believe. And there will be many individuals who will choose not to believe that. It is becoming more challenging for us in the way in which we approach our Bible studies because... People say, well, we just need to go study the Bible with them. But in a postmodernistic world, you have to, first of all, convince people that there is an objective standard by which you've got to live your life. That your truth isn't different from my truth, and your way of living isn't different from my way of living, and we've all got our own personal journey to get to heaven. We've got to, first of all, convince people, no, there is one objective standard. There is one creator who has given one objective standard. We've got to get them to that. And we've got to recognize 
that as our world changes, the way in which we approach Bible study and the way in which we study with someone, we've got to find out where they are so that we, get, so that we can know where to begin in that study. But even when we do all of that, and we present God's Word, sometimes people will say, nah, I don't, I don't believe that. So what is our next state? Well, the next state of salvation, or the next state that one will progress through as they get to that point wherein they will receive eternal salvation, is a matter of confession. You know when you think about that, You would think that getting someone convinced of something is would, would be the difficult thing, right? That, boy, if you can get them convinced of something, and they accept what you're saying, and they believe what you're saying, and they believe that what you're saying is true, and they may even go so far as to say, you know, I think you're right. You would think, well, this is kind of an automatic step, isn't it? I mean, if they believe and they accept that, you would think that confessing that faith would be an automatic step. Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 10. What does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. Paul is having to make some arguments here in the book of Romans and having, having to deal with... Um, the Jews' misperception of themselves in reference to God. And so it seems as though Paul is anticipating some objections from the Jews. And their objection is, well, but we didn't know that this was what God was doing. We weren't aware of that. And Paul said, really? Your own prophets were aware of that. The prophets that you read from every Sabbath were aware of that. Is that really your excuse? Is that really the reason that the Jewish nation has gone about to establish their own righteousness? Remember that he says that in verse 1? They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, and so they have established their own righteousness. And so are the Jews saying, well, the reason we did that is because we didn't know any better. And Paul said, no, you did. Well, the reason we did that is because this knowledge is too far away from us. And Paul said, no, no, it's not. Don't don't try to make that, that claim. What does the Scripture say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. Look previously what he says in that, in that text. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. The message of Christ, the message of the anointed one, is not some message far out here that nobody can get to. Your own prophet said, it is near you. That is, that word of faith which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Here is water, the Ethiopian eunuch said. What hinders me from being baptized? Philip said, do you believe? I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. He made that good confession. Now you would think, as we've said, that that would be automatic, right? That people who would 
believe that Jesus is the Christ, that they would have no problems acknowledging and making that confession. And yet we find in John chapter 12 some individuals who we are told believe, but they would not confess. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Boy, if I had the time to stop and just mine into that text, there's so much in that text. But what we're looking at for this text is the fact that individuals can have a belief in something that they can believe, but something will keep them from making that confession. And it's different for different people. It may be, well, if I make that confession, then I condemn my grandmother, who was never where you're claiming I need to be. It may be that, well, if I make that confession, then I'm going to have to change my career. I'm going to have to make changes somehow in my life. For these people, said, well, if we make this confession, look, nevertheless, even the rulers believed in him. But they recognized that even though they were rulers, even though they were in a position of authority, they couldn't control what the other people in the position of authority might do to them and that they might find themselves being put out of the synagogue. I'm in a position of authority. I'm in a position of leadership. But if I accept this message, I'm going to lose my position. And so, because they love that position, and having that approval of men, and being looked up to with that position, they refuse to confess. This is a passage that maybe should be read in connection with Matthew chapter 6. Those who love to be seen by men. Or in Matthew chapter 23, the Pharisees who love to have the chief seats among the synagogue, in the synagogue. We love our position. And sometimes that's what keeps people from confessing. Is that a problem? Well, look in Matthew chapter 10 and verses 32 through 33. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Your confession of Jesus, your refusal to confess Jesus, that can come before baptism. It can come after baptism. You can refuse to confess that you are a follower of God even after you've been baptized. And if you refuse and you're ashamed to serve the Lord after you've been baptized and your sins have been forgiven... If you refuse to make that confession daily in your life and live that daily in your life, don't be surprised when you stand before the Father and He says, 
You denied me, I'm going to deny you. Individuals who believe, but they refuse to confess. And so as a result of that, they got no closer to salvation. But there's another state that we find God's Word talks about, and that is the state of repentance. In Acts chapter 17, we'll go back there and we'll read this passage again. In Acts 17 and verse 30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all men everywhere should repent because He has fixed the day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through whom He is appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. It's interesting that with this passage, one could, when we use this in reference to ignorance, one can go right back to 1 Peter and one can see that when when Peter is acknowledging that at one time that they were in a state of ignorance, he is acknowledging and he is encouraging them not to go back to a certain way of life. What does that imply then? If he's exhorting them, don't go back to that way of life that you lived when you were living that in your ignorance with lust. It implies that they had turned from that life and turned to something else now that they were enlightened. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, when those on the day of Pentecost asked Peter, after being convicted of killing the very one they've been waiting for, what shall we do? And Peter tells them, repent and be baptized. Why is it that God is still allowing this world to stand? Because he is waiting for Repentance. In Second Peter chapter 3, in verse 9, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. In Romans chapter 2, in verse 4, very likely Paul is addressing the Jews here. And he may be addressing them, not in a specific way, but kind of in a vague way so that he can get the point that he wants to make to them. Because he definitely gets to them in verse 17 when he says, But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law. But he wanted to make sure that they got the point that he was making at the first part of the chapter. Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things, verse 3. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you shall escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of his riches, of his kindness and tolerance and patience? not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. These individuals needed to repent, and what should have motivated that is for them to thought about how kind God has been to them. Now, they saw their history very different, didn't they? The Jews looked at their history, and they saw it in a very different light. We know that because when Stephen acknowledged to the council in Acts chapter 17, you have always been a stiff-necked and uncircumcised people, and they stoned him. 
No, you've got a different version of our history. And Stephen said, no, I've got the correct version of the history. You've just got blinders on to your history. But that's really is your history. You looked at the kindness of God selecting you as a people. Moses reminded them, you're not great. God didn't select you because of your greatness or your power or your might. And so you should have looked at yourself and how, how blessed we are, how privileged we are. We've received the kindness of God, and that should have motivated you every time you started walking away from God to think about the fact that I have a unique position with God. I have a unique relationship with God, and I have it because of the kindness of God. How dare I walk away from the one who has given me such kindness? And that should have brought you back to him. It didn't, but it should have. And the Jews remain stiff-necked and uncircumcised. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, in verse 10, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. There are prisons across our nation that are filled with people who are sorry and sorrowful, but they're not repentant. Now, they're sorrowful and they're sorry that they got caught. But you let them out again, and what do we have? How many repeat offenders in our prison system do we have which indicates the fact, well, are they sorrowful? Yes, they're sorry that they got caught, but they're not repentant because they haven't made any change. That's what repentance is. That's what those individuals in First Peter had done. And Peter's saying, look, you've turned away from that lifestyle. Don't return to that state in which you were ignorant, in which you knew better. But is this unrepentant state a problem? Look in Romans chapter 2. So we've read down to verse 4. Do you think lightly the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, here's what's going to happen. You're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. You're going to get wrath too. Why do I say that? Because in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, he has identified the fact that the wrath of God is going to fall upon the Gentiles. And the Jews had no problem with that kind of a message. You're absolutely right. They're immoral. They're ungodly. They're not following you. Your wrath should fall upon them. And then Paul turns to the Jews and says, but your stubborn and unrepentant heart guess what you're storing up? Wrath also. Wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. It's failing to repent a problem. In Luke chapter 13, 
Luke records, it says, there is this, Now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? Well, you know, by virtue of the fact of Jesus asking that question, you know, well, that's, exa- that's exactly what they thought. They looked at that situation and they said, boy, those people, they must have really been bad to have that happen to them. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tyrant in Siloam fell and killed were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? Um, well, if the first one was a rhetorical question, this must be a rhetorical question too. That's exactly what they thought. What's the point of the passage? The point is, well, those things haven't happened to me, and that happened to them, so they must have been really bad, and I've not had that happen to me, so therefore I must be all right. That's the way we sometimes reason in our minds. Well, I've not had that. Well, I've I've never suffered that. Well, that's never happened to me, those kind of terrible things. And so therefore, there must be, even in the back of our minds, sometimes we have, well, there must be something that they're doing because we reason, well, you know, the way of the transgressor is hard, and so they must be really terrible sinners over there, and I've not had that happen to me, so I must be okay because look what's happened to them. But notice what Jesus says. He says, while you're looking at what has happened to them and extrapolating from that, that you must be okay, he says, I'm telling you, you're mistaken in your assessment of yourself. No, your sacrifices may not have been mingled and your blood may not have been mingled with the sacrifices that you made. And no, a tower may not have fallen on you, but I'm telling you, as those people perish, you're going to perish, you're all going to be in the same boat unless you repent. When people fail to change and fail to turn from that which they need to be turning from and turn to righteousness, then if they remain in that unrepentant state, what is going to happen? Romans 2 says the wrath of God is going to fall upon them. And so we have those that were ignorant, that have been taught, they have believed, they have confessed, and they repented. Now, we have some of our denominational friends that would say, Adonis, I think you got carried away with your boxes. You put too many in there. Because if someone will believe and confess and repent, then they receive salvation. Oh, no, no, I forgot, Adonis. They need to pray. That's what goes in that next box, right? Those who may believe and those who will confess and repent, they need to pray the sinner's prayer and they need to make that statement to God and then God will forgive them. Well, let's see if that's the next state that we find in God's Word. In Acts chapter 22 and verse 16, I would suggest to you that the next state that we find in God's Word is that of a baptized state. In Acts 22 and verse 16, when the Apostle Paul is retelling his story of his conversion, and he's telling the time in which Ananias came to him, and Ananias states to him, Why do you delay, get up, and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name? In Acts chapter 9, 
in the chronology of when the story actually takes place in the book of Acts. And I departed, entered the house where Simon or where uh, Paul was saying, Saul at that time. And after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me to say to you that to regain your sight and to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. A couple of things I want you to think about in this passage. First, in Acts chapter 22 and verse 16, when the statement is made, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized. We don't have anything in that particular story. Well, did Paul get up and get baptized? Did he do that? And so we come back to Acts chapter 9, and while we don't have that conversation of why do you delay recorded for us by Luke, it's told to us by Paul when he's retelling the story, but when Luke is telling the story, Luke acknowledges the fact that that's exactly what Paul did. That whatever Ananias came and told him, he gave him his sight, and then Saul got up and was baptized. Now here's the second thing I want you to consider about this passage. This is the only time ever in which a man delayed his baptism. And the only example that we have in all of God's Word wherein someone delayed their baptism, the statement is, why do you delay, arise, and get baptized and wash away your sins? I point that out because friends and denominations need to recognize the fact that when they say, well, we're going to schedule a baptismal service next month. Or we're going to schedule a time to baptize when we've got five or ten that need to get baptized, and then we'll baptize them. We're going to delay until next month, or we're going to delay until we've got five or ten. Say, well, that doesn't follow the pattern. The only time in which we find that there was ever a delay of a candidate who needed to get baptized, he is rebuked for delaying. In fact, that's why the Philippian jailer, in the same hour of the night, upon his belief, he was baptized. I don't say that to run down our friends and denominations. I say that to enlighten you. Your church isn't following the pattern found in the New Testament in reference to how quick one is baptized. Now I understand why they don't. If I didn't believe that baptism was necessary for my salvation, there would be no reason to rush it. But if it is necessary for my salvation, it makes perfect sense why someone would say, well, don't delay in the same hour of the night. Let's get this taken care of. Makes perfect sense. And so I would ask that you consider that and what the Bible says in reference to that. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, it is baptism. Baptism does also now save us. But if I don't get baptized, is that an issue? In John 3, in verse 5, early on, Nicodemus comes to the Lord by night and has quite a lengthy conversation to him or with our Lord. And Jesus, when 
Jesus tells him that one must be born again and he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says, well, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? The grace may increase. Well, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that just as Christ was raised from the dead of the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Where does newness of life start? Not before baptism. Newness of life starts after baptism. Where do I have that clear conscience? Not before baptism. After baptism. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Where is life? Is it before baptism or after baptism? Where is this life that's talked about? Is it before one is buried or after one is buried? Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Is it important that we are in that kingdom? In Colossians chapter 1, He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His dear Son and whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Unless you are born again, you will not enter the kingdom of God. And if I am not entering, if I do not enter the kingdom of God, then what do I miss out on? I miss out on redemption. I miss out on forgiveness. Because redemption and forgiveness is in the kingdom of God. And the only way to get translated into that, that Paul says, is through baptism. And so if I fail to be baptized then I'm trying to espouse a doctrine that says I can be saved without forgiveness, I can be saved without redemption. And those things are used interchangeably throughout God's Word. So we come back to our chart and we see that baptism should follow the one who is repentant. But you may be looking at that now and thinking, uh, well, you still got too many boxes. <laughs> really. I want you to consider something that the Bible tells us. And that is that we are saved here on this earth. Our sins are forgiven. And we stand in a position of a relationship and fellowship with God. But we are waiting and awaiting eternal salvation in heaven. And so while we are in a baptized state of having our sins washed away, 
having our conscience been made clear, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 20, translated into the kingdom of God where we have the redemption and the forgiveness of sins, there's still a state that we have to maintain while we are on this earth. And that is we've got to be faithful. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10, be faithful until death, Jesus told the church in Smyrna, and I will give you the crown of life. In 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5, This is a message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light and see himself as in the light, we have fellowship with him, one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Are we walking in the light? In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 3, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. You can put there Romans chapter 8, verse 29. We have conformed ourselves to the image of our Savior, to the image of Jesus. Chapter 3 of 1 John, verse 18. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth and we will assure our heart before him in whatever our heart condemns us for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. But the Bible is replete with examples with individuals who started this journey and did not finish this journey. And the generation that came out of the land of Egypt was used time and time again as a generation that was an unfaithful, unbelieving, disobedient generation. And they were used time and time again as an example of how not to live your life. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you, Hebrews 3 and verse 12, an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? Now think for a moment. What's the place and the condition of the people the Hebrew writer is addressing 
He's addressing people that are wavering in their faithfulness. He says, look, you need to look at yourself and you need to see your generation through the eyes of another generation that was completely faithless. You don't want to be like that generation. Who was God angry with? Who did God expel His wrath upon? Whose bodies lain strewn in the wilderness as a result of their sin? What generation was that? Well, you know. To whom did He swear that they would not enter His rest? You're not going to receive what I have prepared for you because of your disobedient, evil, unbelieving heart. So, here's His conclusion. So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, now here's the conclusion for them. Therefore, let us fear. We need to learn something from this generation. Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, they had a rest, they didn't receive it because they were an evil, unbelieving generation. You've got a choice as to what kind of generation you're going to be. You've got a rest just like they had a rest. You've got a choice just like they had a choice. They chose poorly. What about you? Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any of you may seem to come short of it. You ever looked on the map to see how close the wilderness wanderings was in reference to the land of Canaan? Close. So close. And that's his point. You may come short of it if you fail to follow and be obedient to the Lord. In Galatians chapter 6, you can read Hebrews chapter 6, 4 through 6, and 2 Peter 2, 20 through 22. But in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, we need to acknowledge the fact Brethren, if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. It's possible for brethren to get caught in a trespass and need to be restored. Don't say, as John says in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But if we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. Is it possible to be restored? Absolutely. Is it possible that if I make confession of my sin that I can be forgiven? Absolutely. Because the last thing that you'll need to do if you're in that state is what happened with Simon the sorcerer. Old habits die hard. Killing the old man, it takes time. We've worked with individuals who come out of the world, and you know, they have had habits that they have been in for years. And so we've described to them, like, look, the devil doesn't let go of you very easy. And the old man, we would like to think that you just bonk him on the head and bury him, and that's the way that, that I mean, that's the end. But it doesn't work that way. Because old habits and old ways of thinking and old processes, they die slowly. You've got to put that to death. And that takes time sometimes. And so sometimes we have slip ups. And I want to suggest to you that's what happened to Simon the Sorcerer. 
When Simon looked and saw that when Peter and John got to Samaria and that by their laying out of hands it gave individuals the nobility, Simon said, whoo, let me have that too. Because that was kind of the trade of the sorcery. See a sorcerer with a new trick? Hey, I'll buy that trick from you. Magicians still do that today. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter for your heart's not right with God. Therefore repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if possible the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I say that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourself so that nothing in what you have said may come upon you. Sometimes our old habits, our old man just rears its ugly head and we had to repent of a choice or a decision that we made. But praise be to God that we can confess that, we can acknowledge that, we can turn from that, and we can pray, and God will forgive us. And so here is our chart. You know what this really is? It is simply another way to answer the question of what must I do to be saved. I need to be taught the gospel. I need to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God and to make confession of that. I need to turn from the way that I've been living and start living for my Lord. I need to be baptized in the watery grave of baptism, following the process of the life of our Lord, died, buried, rose again, to newness of life, and that I need to faithfully serve him all the days of my life so that one day I will hear him say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. If you're in the ignorant state, you need to learn. Would you let us teach you? If you're in the taught state, then you need to believe. If you believe, would you confess? If you've confessed, would you repent? If you're a penitent, would you let us baptize you? If you are baptized, would you live faithfully? If you're unfaithful, would you repent and pray? And if you're faithfully serving the Lord while here this evening, then you just need to keep on keeping on. What is the state of your salvation? If you're here this evening and there's something that we can do to help you make your life right, let us know. Come forward. While together we stand and while we sing.